You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Dr. Sandro Galea, Associate Professor of Epidemiology at the University of Michigan. Today, we're going to be discussing mental health and the increased prevalence of anxiety mood disorders in residents of New Orleans. Thank you very much, Doctor, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Dr. Galea, it's been over two years since Katrina. Can we look at the mental health in New Orleans and make any judgments about it? The mental health of residents of New Orleans specifically and of the Gulf Coast in general has been poor, but uh, in many respects, it's not surprising. We expected there to be substantial psychopathology after Hurricane Katrina. We expected there to be not only an increase over baseline in terms of psychopathology, but also that the levels of psychopathology recorded would probably be worse than what we found after other natural disasters. So in many respects, this paper and this sort of part of a larger set of research showed us what we expected. What was a bit more surprising in terms of what we found was the observation that one of the biggest drivers of psychopathology after Hurricane Katrina were financial and social and situational stressors and that people who are having difficult time getting housing, people having a hard time finding contractors, those who had lost a job or having a hard time making ends meet, these were the people who were at greatest risk for psychopathology. And this was a greater risk for psychopathology over and above their exposure to the hurricane itself. So what this study shows, I think, fairly clearly and hopefully convincingly, is that the aftermath circumstances after these events are important drivers of mental health and from a public mental health perspective, of course, that has important implications. You mentioned that you expected or anticipated that this type of problem might be worse in New Orleans. Why did you make that judgment? It's been pretty well shown that after disasters and terrorism and mass traumas in general, probably the single biggest driver of the scope of psychopathology is the extent of exposure to traumatic events. By traumatic events here, we're referring to specifically DSM um, Category A traumatic events as per definition of post-traumatic stress disorder. And we knew very well that residents of New Orleans were exposed to more traumatic events per capita than uh, were residents, say, of Louisiana overall or Mississippi or Alabama. So it was entirely predictable and uh, turned out to be the case that psychopathology would be worse off in residents of New Orleans than the rest of the Gulf Coast area. Yeah, you did mention that. So residents of Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama did not have as much in the way of post-traumatic stress as people who actually lived in New Orleans. But how about the residents from New Orleans who do not return to New Orleans? What does the data show on those individuals? Well, our study was not just among the residents of New Orleans who returned to New Orleans. We looked for residents, people who were in the Gulf Coast area, regardless of where they were when we studied them. So the estimates that we came up with apply to people who were living there before, not just those who sort of come back. Now, the larger question you raised, though, is what does dislocation and relocation do to psychopathology over time? And that's a difficult question. Our intention is to continue doing this study longitudinally to try to get a little bit of this question. The role of displacement after these events is not terribly clear. In many respects, displacement is thought to be 
likely an adverse event with respect to psychopathology. And the reasoning behind that is that displacement is associated with breaking of social bonds, people having more limited access to health and social resources with which they are familiar. But on the plus side, displacement is also associated with people being less exposed to the traumatic events that are going on on a day-to-day basis in an area that's being affected by a disaster. And displacement might as well be associated in certain cases with the receipt of better services from a health and social services point of view. So the role of displacement is an interesting one. It's a complicated one and one which we will look at more carefully both in this study and in other studies. You mentioned that the driving stressors were such things as loss of a job, loss of residence, not being able to obtain health care. Is that to say that those kind of stressors had a greater impact than, say, actual physical illness or injury from the disaster or actually even a loss of a loved one? What I said was that the stressors, what I'm calling stressors here to distinguish them from traumatic events, were important over and above the role of traumatic events. And uh, loss of a loved one or personal physical injury is, is itself a traumatic event. So these stressors were present and important independently than was exposure to traumatic events like loss of a loved one or personal injury. Now, which one is more important? That is always a tricky question. It's a tricky question because I can tell you relative risks of one versus another, but that doesn't quite capture which one is more important because relative risks are quantifying something that probably is ultimately qualitatively different. And I think statistically, the best conclusion one can draw is that both are important and both are important independently of one another. And there is no surprise that the traumatic events like loss of a loved one or being injured yourself in a disaster is an important determinant of psychopathology after these events. What is a little bit more surprising is that financial and situational stressors are important determinants of psychopathology, separate and apart from the traumatic events. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and we're discussing with Dr. Sandro Galea the psychopathology that exists in New Orleans following Katrina, the disaster of 2005. Did you notice, or has your study shown, any sociodermographic differences in your cohort? That's a very good question. We expected sociodemographic differences. In particular, we expected gender differences, which have been shown before. Women are typically at greater risk of post-traumatic stress disorder than are men, for example. But we actually found no sociodemographic differences in the sample in this analysis in terms of risk for psychopathology, which was a bit of a surprise. And we speculate in the paper that the reason for that is that the traumatic events and the stressors were so ubiquitous as to blot out any variability in between the sociodemographic categories. It was an unexpected finding. It was a relatively new finding. And I don't think that it means that there are no sociodemographic differences in risk of psychopathology in under normal circumstances, but these were pretty far from normal circumstances. And I think it tells us something about the fact that in situations of ubiquitous exposure to traumatic events and stressors, we may expect that the rules of the game are different and the factors that drive psychopathology are quite different than the factors that drive psychopathology under other circumstances. 
I could see that somebody who is used to being able to purchase health care easily, is well insured, is financially stable, when faced with a disaster, might really be affected possibly even more than somebody who has been marginalized in our health care system for years. What would you say to that? Yeah, I think there's very little evidence that that's the case. I think the evidence all points in the direction of the fact that people who are worse off after these events, and by worse off I mean financially and socially, do worse from a point of view of psychopathology than people who are better after these events. Now, you could argue, presumably, that somebody who was doing well tends to lose more. That's fair enough. But the reality is that people who are doing well, even if they lose a lot, still have enough resources and enough of a reserve that they're still doing better than those who are not doing so well. So it seems like what matters is status post-event. And status post-event is fairly clearly linked to status pre-event, that the better off you were before, relatively speaking, you're still doing better off after an event. I see. I assume that in your study you had some non-responders. How do you evaluate non-responders? My question really means, is the non-responder so mentally ill that he doesn't respond to your attempt at getting data and therefore your results become skewed? That's a great question, and it's always a big question with this kind of study. In terms of the non-responders, there are always non-responders, and the question is, who are they? I mean, one could argue it both ways. You could suggest that non-responders are so ill that they don't want to talk to you, in which case you're underestimating illness. Or you could argue non-responders are well, and they don't want to talk to you because they feel there's no interest in talking to you, in which case you're overestimating. Of course, most of the time you can't know, and in this study we had no way of knowing who the non-responders were, but it's been looked at in other studies in these kind of circumstances, and it's been looked at in particular from the point of view of attrition in longitudinal studies. And the fact is that most of the time we suspect that non-response either to a single study or attrition in a longitudinal study is non-differential to psychopathology. That It's certainly differential by sociodemographics. For example, we know that women and older people tend to talk to researchers more than do men and younger people, for example. But from the point of view of psychopathology, there is very little evidence that non-response is differential to such an extent as to invalidate results from fairly large samples. One of the things I was struck by when I read your paper was the low suicide attempt and also even the low suicidal thought processes that were in your patients that you talked to. How do you answer that? The low suicidal thinking is something that's been puzzling us in the sample since the beginning. We've actually published a previous paper that specifically focused on that. And the bottom line is that we, we don't know. We, we don't really know why this low suicidal. There have been a lot of theories about it, including sort of hope and growth after these kind of events. And all that is relatively controversial and the role of different psychological domains after such events is untested and unclear. So I think I would have to come down on the side of I don't know, and uh, it will require some much more careful thinking about it and research that explicitly aims to address the, that question. There currently exist no good studies that have convincingly shown whether suicides increase or decrease after these kind of events, for example. There have been 
some studies, I think they're the ones that have been published, all have substantial limitations. I think the question about actual suicides pre- and post these events remains open, and I think similarly the question about suicidality and suicidal intention pre- and post these events remains open as well. I want to thank Dr. Sandra Galea, who's been our guest today, and we've been discussing the mental health problems of survivors of Katrina. And I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. For questions and comments, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.